Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 27, September 20th through September 26th, 1861. Last week, we continued our small tour of Kentucky and West Virginia. One of the first skirmishes is fought on Kentucky soil, and Robert E. Lee does not shine initially in his debut commanding Confederate troops. This week, we will head back to see what is happening with Sterling Price, as well as discuss Confederate Arizona and what the situation is in the American Southwest. We will start first with Missouri heading to the key city of Lexington. Lexington would be a prosperous economic center, as well as a jump-off point for the Santa Fe Trail. In September of 1861, it would draw the attention of the Missouri State Guard. Before we get into that, though, just want to once again plug the Patreon feed. We have put up another memoir review. This one is the memoir of Sam Watkins, Company H. So that is posted on the Patreon. I already have the next Patreon ready to go. Uh, One in the chamber, so to speak, here. We're going back to a movie review, and that's going to drop here in October. It's going to be 1951's The Tall Target. So we are going relatively in chronological order here. The Tall Target is a dramatic movie but it does follow around events that are really closely tied to the assassination attempt on Abraham Lincoln when he's on the way to his inauguration. So remember, we talked about that in the regular feed here. So this is a movie about that 1951 release. Uh, Actually, really was pleasantly surprised with this one, so uh, be on the lookout for that to come out here in October. When last we left off, Price and his Missouri State Troops were moving north after their victory at Wilson's Creek. There was a brief detour at Dry Wood Creek, which did not impede their progress. In fact, since Price had decided to break it off with Confederate forces, his ranks had swelled By September 12th, 1861, as they approached the city, the State Guard had around 15,000 men as compared to the garrison of federal troops, which numbered around 3,500. Supplies were still an issue, though. Many of the state troops had their own shotguns and hunting rifles, all different kinds of caliber. So as you can imagine, you have a lot of different weapons with a lot of different types of caliber ammunition that is going to be difficult to supply properly. So this is going to plague the Southern War effort here in Missouri early on. 
supplies located at Lexington would be a big boost for these state troops. Also, there was a large sum of money that Governor Claiborne Jackson wished to secure for the war effort and keep out of the hands of the Union. Facing off against the Missouri troops was Colonel James Mulligan, a native of New York, but the son of Irish immigrants. The colonel would go on to be the commander of Camp Douglas, which we actually discussed in the Prisoner of War segment before moving on to the Eastern Theater, where he would be mortally wounded in 1864. Mulligan's Illinois Regiment would be known as the Irish Brigade due to the large number of Chicago Irish that had enlisted. This would be the bulk of the defense, along with Union-sympathetic Missouri troops. They were better armed and had strong defensive positions, but faced a daunting task without reinforcements against such a large force. Price would begin the assault on Lexington on the 18th of September, after a brief standoff between the two sides. An incident would occur that I think illustrates the brutality of the war in Missouri, and will sort of foreshadow the guerrilla fighting that will continue throughout the war. During the assault on Lexington, both sides would utilize fixed positions, such as buildings, to cover against the enemy fire. A position known as the Anderson House was designated a hospital by the Union defenders. If you recall from our discussion in a previous episode, these structures would be marked so that they would not be targeted. Oftentimes, that marking was a yellow flag. Likewise, it was an agreement that they would not be used to hide troops so that they would not have to be targeted. Missouri State troops would move into the Anderson House and use it to take shots at the Union positions. When the Union forces stormed the building, they were not happy that the hospital had been used in this manner. Three captured Confederates would be executed by the assaulting Union as a result. Both sides would claim foul, as the South argued, that the captured soldiers should still be treated as prisoners, while the North argued that they had violated the laws of war by their actions. I think looking back on it, we can see that both sides had a legitimate gripe in this situation. The siege would continue, with neither side really gaining ground. Supplies for the Union would begin to run low, as just with sheer numbers, the southern forces were able to choke off their water supply. You remember that John C. Fremont will be having problems. He did dispatch Samuel Sturgis 
if you remember, he played a role in the action at Wilson's Creek. In fact, it was Sturgis who takes over command of the remaining Union forces when Nathaniel Lyon has been killed and Fran Siegel has um, tucked his tail and ran all the way back to Springfield, uh, to put it lightly. So Sturgis, along with the other forces sent to Lexington, would not be able to break through the Confederate lines. September 20th would see Price tired of waiting as the state troops would move in to try to assault the defensive positions. The First Battle of Lexington is also known as the Battle of the Hemp Bales because the Missouri Guard used these thick bales of hemp as moving cover, closing in on the Union lines before the attack. Their charge was actually repulsed, despite this ingenious way of providing some moving cover. But shockingly, a white flag was raised by the Northerners. Mulligan had not given the order, but rather an officer from the Missouri Home Guard had done so. After a brief conference with Price, Mulligan would call for a council of war where Union officers voted to surrender. I have seen it that this vote was actually pretty mixed and it only very narrowly won in terms of surrender. So the outcome could have resulted much differently had there been a vote swayed to the opposite side. These men would be paroled. Price and Fremont coming to an agreement for an exchange shortly thereafter. Mulligan would actually refuse to be paroled, but Sterling Price was so impressed that he ordered a buggy so that the colonel could travel safely back to the Union lines. Overall, the Confederates would gain much in terms of support for the capture of Lexington. As mentioned, there were key supplies as well as the $900,000 in cash that Governor Jackson was seeking. If at any point Price could have pressed the advantage, now is the time. Seems that the capture of Lexington is almost more important than the outcome of Wilson's Creek. But alas, the state troops were still lacking in training and would give ground to the larger Union force under Fremont, withdrawing back into the southwestern part of the state, closer to the Confederate forces who had come to their aid earlier in the summer. Before we move into the next event, I feel like I have done a disservice by not setting the stage properly. We need to take a look out west to know what is happening in the present-day states of New Mexico and Arizona. You may not realize that the American Southwest plays a part in our story, but it sure does. Just as an even further recap, remember that at this point, the New Mexico Territory is still a new acquisition for the United States. 
there is still a large Hispanic population. And this is so large a number that speeches at the time are given in English, but also translated into Spanish so that the majority of folks listening could understand. This territory would pose an interesting opportunity for the newly formed Confederacy. It reached all the way to California, and access to gold and other resources would be valuable. In addition, having a Pacific port would be important to the bringing in of supplies for the Confederate war effort. A vision of a transcontinental Confederacy seemed like it could be a reality. Those who had settled in these territories came from all over. I know we have discussed identity and motivation behind soldiers who would be fighting in the war. Some would take to their new home and maybe identify, say, as a Californian. But there were a good amount of newly arrived settlers that might still identify with their state of origin, especially in the South. In fact, I think it can be safely argued that in the case of California as well as Colorado, the amount of settlers into these areas that would rather identify as members of their their new territory would actually turn the tide in favor of the Union. So sort of backfires in that sense for the Confederacy. But that's going to be what they're going to bank on as they set out to potentially increase their territory. I want to briefly point out how personal the war is in the far west, given that many of the officers involved had recently served together on the frontier. This would be more of a tighter-knit community, shall we say, and oftentimes they have fought together against whether that's native tribes or in the Mexican-American War, and they've been career soldiers, most likely for this time. We have great examples in terms of Edward Canby and Henry Hopkins Sibley, who are going to be going toe-to-toe here early in 1862, but they served together in the Mexican-American War. They probably would have known each other on a personal basis. You know, their wives might have known each other. Uh, it's some of these situations that make it seem almost more brutal, more personal here out in the West. Henry Hopkins Sibley, speaking of him, would want to lead a potential invasion of New Mexico from Texas, and would actually be given the blessing of the Confederate president. Sibley had seen a long career in the Army prior to secession, serving in the Mexican-American, Seminole, and Utah War. He invented several items used widely in the military, including a tent, the Sibley tent, and a stove, the Sibley stove. Sibley had a reputation as a drinker, which actually possibly hinders him during his planned invasion of the New Mexico Territory. Once secession had been announced, 
Sibley had attempted to set up a plan to capture New Mexico, corresponding with William Loring, who you will remember we actually introduced here in the last few episodes in the Western Virginia theater. The letter was actually sent by mistake to the new Union commander, Edward Canby, which highlighted how they intended to take New Mexico for the southern states. Loring, though, had already flown the coop, and he's, you know, obviously he's back in Virginia, right? Talk about awkward that that letter shows up, and it's it's for Loring, but Camby's reading it uh, had to have been a little bit alarming, right? Speaking of Edward Canby, he is not usually listed when it comes to important Union generals, but he actually does a really good job And he should probably be up there on the list of influential generals throughout the war. He's a career soldier prior to the Civil War. He serves, of course, in the Mexican-American War, and he's out there on the frontier. And he has a very difficult task, which is to raise enough troops to thwart a Confederate invasion. It did not help that Canby was wary of volunteers, preferring regulars. Sibley, it should be noted, argued that the invasion would be self-sustaining, gathering troops and supplies as they went. So this lower cost for the Confederacy is appealing. Obviously, they have their hands full in the east and in the Mississippi River Valley, among other places. So this invasion into the New Mexico Territory, if it can not cost as much money, that would go a long way. The inhabitants of New Mexico were seen as not good for soldiering. Combine that with potential support from native tribes and the anti-federal Mormons in the north. Mormons, you would be surprised, actually had fought a brief war with the federal government and there are a handful of officers who serve in the Civil War who actually got some experience in this uh, very brief uh, low-casualty war uh, that is fought. So just know that Sibley is building up a small army of Texans that he's going to be using to move through Fort Bliss and then into the Union-occupied territory. In July of 1861, John Baylor would lead an expedition into New Mexico made up of Texas volunteers. So he is the precursor to Sibley's invasion here. Baylor was a rancher and had experience fighting Comanches in his native state. The Texans would skirmish with federal forces under Major Isaac Lind. At first, the plan was to attack the Union troops at Fort Fillmore, but once a sympathetic former Federal soldier warned Lind, the Confederates withdrew to nearby Mesilla. The Federals would follow and attack Mesilla, incurring less than 10 casualties, but being forced to withdraw due to the strong Confederate positions. The rebels were actually bolstered by a large number of pro-Confederate inhabitants of Messiah. After the setback, 
Lind would withdraw his troops north, but a failure to secure water resources would lead to his surrender. The defeat of the Union troops without sustaining casualties would embolden Baylor. Canby, it should also be said, is put in a really tight spot. He's lost a very large number of men, almost 400 men who surrender to the Confederate forces. So this is a very large portion of what he has to work with, especially with his prized regulars. So he's going to have to turn to volunteer troops. Baylor would set up at Messiah, the new Confederate capital of the territory of Arizona. Confederate Arizona would be made up of the southern portions of modern-day Arizona and New Mexico. Baylor would see himself as the governor of the new territory and eventually make an error in ordering a general extermination of Apaches. There's a very entertaining book called The Three-Cornered War that illustrates the fact that there is another party with interest in the fate of this area, and that being the native peoples. Canby has a tough time himself actually stopping conflict between native New Mexicans and the Navajo, which had been held in check with the presence of federal troops, but obviously with them occupied, this sort of opens it up for this sort of raiding conflict between the two sides. Navajo and Apaches would feel campaigns and actions against them by both Union and Confederate forces. If you've ever seen an old Western, you may have heard of some of the key peoples and characters from the Apaches. Mescaleros, Chiricahuas, Cochise, Geronimo, all of these are going to be present during the Civil War. We will go over some campaigns throughout the war, but we should understand that in terms of raiding and being opportunistic in their strikes against larger forces, the Navajo and Apache would be more active during the period of the 1860s. Peace overtures would break down, which did not help the situation, it should also be said. In September of 1861, Texas cavalry under Bethel Coopwood would scout the Union positions at Fort Craig and skirmish with Union forces on September 26th. Fort Craig is a little over 100 miles south of Albuquerque, modern-day New Mexico. At that time, it was on the border with Confederate Arizona. Coopwood was a good candidate to lead Texas troops. He had served in the Mexican-American War before becoming a lawyer in California prior to the outbreak of hostilities. A unit of New Mexico volunteers would be stationed at Craig and skirmish with Coopwood's men between September 24th and 25th. Captain John Minx would ride out with a small handful of men to engage the Confederate forces, which he thought were much smaller in number. Once he realized that the enemy heavily outnumbered his men, he decides to fight it out as long as possible so that the rest of the volunteers could escape. 
Once they had succeeded in their mission, Minx would surrender. Both sides would suffer around 10 casualties, with the addition of a little over 20 captured on the Union side. Union cavalry, under Robert Morris, would attack Coopwood's men at their camp in retaliation for the Battle of Canada Alamosa, sparking a brief fight that saw a handful of casualties on both sides. Morris was a career cavalryman, having served since the 1840s, so he was a good choice to lead an attack on the Confederate forces. We have some first-hand accounts, actually from Bethel Coopwood, who wrote, Firing commenced at 7 o'clock and ended at 11 a.m. The principal portion of the battle was fought with the enemy's force formed in two lines, forming the angle of a square, and my forces formed the same way inside of theirs, my lines being much the shorter. One of my lines was composed of detachment from Captain Pyron's company and a portion of the detachment from Captain Staffwood's company under the immediate command of Lieutenant Poor, Sergeant O'Grady, and Sergeant Brown. My left line was composed of the detachment from my company and a part of the detachment from Captain Stafford's company. This line was under the immediate command of Lieutenant Sutherland, being divided into two platoons, one led by Sergeant Coulter and the other by Private Tevis, who was named for this special occasion. The enemy began to retreat before 11, and about that hour fled from the field. Overall, the Confederates would suffer around 10 total casualties during the skirmish at Fort Thorne, while the Union would suffer only a few wounded. The skirmishes are not really that important in the overall campaigning, but it is a good example of the type of small-scale battles that would occur in this theater of the war. I think that the quote from Bethel Coopwood also sort of displays the small nature of the forces, right? Uh, you might be wondering why exactly I described that out for you, but there's a lot of names for sergeants, even one commanded by a private, a certain platoon. So it sort of illustrates that that there's not really a whole lot of these guys, right? Like if there is a private who is commanding men, then obviously the numbers are probably not as big as the Eastern Theater. So it is a little bit more personal, the fighting that we sort of mentioned at the top of the episode. This kind of skirmishing would also be important for the Confederate troops who were scouting the area for the eventual withdrawal from the territory following their failed invasion. I know some of you are skeptically asking into your listening device, Texas invaded New Mexico during the Civil War, and as already mentioned, the answer is yes. And we will get into that in future episodes, so stay tuned for that. One last thing here. During the week in 1861, the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, will allow for the enlistment of former slaves into the Navy. We may have mentioned prior to this episode, but the Navy was very different for those of African descent than the Army. There were restrictions on the militia for black men, who, although having served in the Revolution, could not form militias as of 1792. The Navy was a little bit different. 
well, certainly there was racism and inequality. There was integration amongst the sailors. Black men would serve on American ships in the years leading up to the war between the states. One Commodore will be quoted during the War of 1812 saying, To my knowledge, a part of them are not surpassed by any seamen we have in the fleet, and I have yet to learn that the color of the skin can affect a man's qualifications or usefulness. They could even gain the rank of petty officer, the naval equivalent to the non-commissioned officers we mentioned when going over army unit structure. In September of 1861, Wells would allow for the contraband slaves to join the Navy if they were of use to the officers who sought their enlistment. Many of them would have valuable naval experience, whether having served on ships or valuable knowledge of the rivers running through the South. These enlistments were done quietly so as not to create outrage in the North. Remember, abolitionists were still the minority. Some 18,000 men of African descent served in the Navy during the war, about three-quarters of which were escaped slaves. Eight of the 18,000 would be awarded the Medal of Honor out of a total of 307 given out in the Navy as a whole. That should do it. In this episode, we saw Lexington, Missouri fall to the Confederates and the First Battle of Lexington, the extent of their advance in the quest to claim Missouri for the South. We also went over what has been going on in the New Mexico Territory and the creation of Confederate Arizona. Finally, we have the including of former slaves to the ranks of the U.S. Navy. Next week, we will head back to West Virginia before talking a little bit about camp life and a a brief rundown of the Crimean War and the influence that the conflict has on the Civil War. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. Week.